Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression, and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to all of our new listeners and to all of our old listeners. Uh, welcome back. My name is Gavriel Hakoen, and I am here today recording with my esteemed co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. Hi, Sadie. And not going to make a joke today at the start? No, I. you know what? I just didn't feel up to making any jokes on the intro of this episode. Honestly, man, I don't blame you because today's episode is not going to be funny. And I feel like it's important for us to just get that out there immediately. If you're turning on this episode and you're like, oh, I'm going to laugh at something, they'll make some jokes about we're not making jokes today because this shit is not funny. Yeah, this is this is not this is not a, a fun, jokey episode, but this is something I felt like needed to be covered. Um, I want to let this you know. This is like the least funny thing that's ever happened in the IFB. This, yeah, um, this episode features what I consider to be the the worst single case of child abuse that has ever come out of the IFB. This is among the worst cases of child abuse ever documented by the U.S. court system, uh, and it is directly IFB related. This episode features discussion of child sexual assault, 
sexual abuse throughout the episode, as well as a brief discussion of attempted suicide. I do want to let you know, however, there is a happy ending. There like a silver lining to this episode. And although we are talking just about absolutely vile, disgusting abuse, the victim that we are discussing survives and there is justice served. And the victim goes on to recover from the incredible abuse that she faced. So while this episode is extremely dark, the ending is much better than the ending of some other episodes that we've done because on some of other episodes that we've done, there's no closure. There's no justice, but this one there, there is, there is a good ending an actual justice, a, a jail term that I can actually be happy about. Yeah. I mean, I always find it easier to talk about a terrible story if I know that things are going to be okay in the end. Yeah. And and things are going to be kind of okay at the end of this episode. If yeah. you still don't feel like you're able to listen to it, that's we totally understand. But if you are listening, um, just know that this gets real dark, but there is a happy ending. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, before we get into all of that, I just have to say this is the Leaving Eden podcast, uh, which is a podcast about my co-host Sadie Carpenter's life uh, in the IFB cult, Independent Fundamental Baptist cult uh, that she was born into. Uh, we talk about her life. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults uh, from time to time on uh, high pressure groups, as well as, you know, we talk about religion, theology. We seek to warn our audience about the dangers of groups like this, as well as to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, freedom of religion. So if you're a newer listener and you want some background information on what we're going to talk about, uh, I would recommend going back and listening to the first episode where we really define what a cult is. I would also recommend going and listening to our five-part First Family of Fundamentalism series in which we really give background info on this cult and all of its, you know, the major skeletons with regards to the leadership. Um, so in today, we're not going to be talking about Sadie's story. We will be talking about somebody else who had it much much worse than she did. Ugh. Yeah. And this, like, this is going to be a deep dive episode. This is going to be a real true crime episode. Yes. And for this episode in particular, if you haven't heard the first family of fundamentalism series, you would probably need to have that background information first, mm. especially the first two episodes of the first family series that feature Jack Hiles. The story that we're discussing today has a lot to do with Hiles Anderson College, specifically during the Hiles era, during yeah. the peak of that era in the, the 1980s. So, okay, so where, where are we going to start this story? So in the 1970s and 80s, there was a couple at First Baptist Church of Hammond and at Hiles Anderson College, and their names were Joseph and Evangeline Combs. Joe Combs was a Bible professor at Hiles Anderson College. You know what? It might be better to say that he was the Bible professor at Hiles Anderson. He wasn't the only Bible teacher, but he was just massively popular among the students. So this guy's very well respected within the IFB. Yes. And we've talked before about how in the IFB, your reputation is very important and how people think of you can really influence how your life goes. And Combs and his family had a very high reputation. He was not only a Bible teacher, but he was also on the board of directors at Hiles Anderson at one point. He was personally close to Jack Hiles. He was a very popular Hiles Anderson chapel speaker. 
And more than all of that, he was the student's favorite Bible teacher, which means that his teaching and his theology was influencing literally hundreds of Hiles Anderson students per year. He was teaching them what to believe before they went out and pastored their own churches and taught other people what to believe. So in the IFB, he he isn't just respected. He is like influential. Yes, he has natural influence. More than just being chosen by Hiles to be with to be a leader within Hiles Anderson, he was chosen by the students as someone that they genuinely wanted to follow. We all know how like powerful and how like motivating an experience, you know, having a really passionate and really good teacher can be. So that's who this guy is. Yes. And when I was at Hiles Anderson, there was a very obvious hierarchy of favorite Bible teachers. Often the people at the top are are charismatic and interesting. We've talked before about the exhaustion and the overwork that Hiles Anderson students and other Bible college students experience. At Hiles Anderson, it's normal to kind of, there's, there's kind of a an unwritten list of very extreme methods of keeping yourself awake during church and chapel because everybody is just so tired all the time. You pass around word of mouth these tricks and tips for how to stay awake. People would hide safety pins in their pocket so they could poke themselves with safety pins or hide tacks in their shoes so they could step down on the tack to keep themselves awake. Mm. Uh, personally, I was a fan of sitting in an uncomfortable position. So where like my, where my foot would go to sleep and then just where it got to the point that it would be really painful. Then I would start moving my foot to get the pins and needles and that would keep you awake. Uh, other people would just drink a bunch of water right before class or right before chapel. So they would be uncomfortable from needing to use the bathroom and then that would keep them awake. Give themselves kidney failure. Uh, Yeah. That plus monster energy drinks and a bunch of coffee. It's a great combination. What? A Bible teacher or a chapel preacher who was engaging enough that you didn't have to do any of those things to stay awake, that was a real blessing. That was a real gift to a Hiles Anderson student. Once again, though, I am just astounded by the things that you have told. Like the utter gulf between our upbringings is like unfathomable. This is unbelievable stuff. I mean, you didn't, you didn't ever have a hard time staying awake in college class. I mean, yeah, but like only when they were at 8 a.m. and I was hungover, <laughs> you know, like, I, and if that happened, I would just be like, uh, I'll just sleep through it. I won't go get the notes from somebody else or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so most Bible colleges have a, a policy where if you miss three class meetings in a semester, you automatically fail the class. Oh, yeah. My my college had that, too. And so, you know, you just have to email your professor and be like, I'm sick. Oh, okay. Is, so you, is there what was, you would have ours to do. was no matter what, even if you are sick, too bad. Ugh. I mean, if you fall asleep in class at Hiles Anderson, though, you're, you're not going to like what happens. I've, I've seen chapel speakers make uh, men, they wouldn't do this to women, but I've seen chapel speakers make men run laps around the chapel while the speaker kept preaching. To humiliate him in front of the entire student body for falling asleep. It's you. I mean, I've seen teachers throw things at students, all kind of stuff I've seen at Hiles Anderson. Yikes. So Joe Combs was not only entertaining, so that people liked him because he was entertaining and you wouldn't fall asleep during his class or during chapel. But he was also well known for explaining his views on the Bible in a way that was very easy to understand and easy to remember. He was considered one of the greatest IFB Bible teachers ever. 
So Combs was so popular that students would go out of their way to take his classes. He is probably still the most popular Bible teacher that Hiles Anderson has ever had. So your parents went to Hiles Anderson College in the early 1990s. So was Joe Combs their Bible teacher? My dad, I asked my dad about this. He said that he did have a class with him, but he couldn't remember what class. My mom also took a class with him, and she thought it was probably a class on the book of Hebrews, but she wasn't sure either. Okay. So I, so I assume that, you know, if he, so if he's popular, his wife is also going to be well-respected because that seems to be the norm within the IFB. Yes. But I haven't, that would be the norm, but I haven't been able to find a lot of information about whether she was active at First Baptist Church of Hammond. And that really sticks out as odd to me. Because usually I would be able to to go into my normal sources and find some info about, oh, yeah, my wife was in the Women's Missionary Society with her. Or, yes, she was my soul winning partner in Foster Club. Because if your husband was on staff at Hiles Anderson, you would have been expected to be active in at least one of those groups, Women's Missionary Society or Foster Club, and or teach a Sunday school class, or work on a bus route, or at least several of those things. And I have just not been able to find any information on whether she ever did any of those things. Yeah, but like in IFB culture, it's probably almost impossible for a man to make it up to that level if his wife isn't also all the way involved. Yeah, if she's not able to provide the optics of really being bought in, it would have been hard for him to advance to that level. So I'm not sure if... This information is just hard to find because it was overshadowed by her crimes. Like maybe nobody wants to admit that she was their soul winning partner in Foster Club because of what she ended up doing. So I don't know if it's that or if she was really just not very involved in church activities. Hmm. She did have six children. So I'm thinking that maybe that kept her busy and she kind of got an exemption from church activities because she did homeschool her six children rather than send them to the Hammond Baptist schools that Heil started. Apparently, well, by homeschool, homeschool is not the correct word because apparently Joseph Combs believed that Jesus did not learn to read or write until he was 12 years old. So the best way for him to raise his children would be for them not to learn to read or write until they were 12 years old. So this is another like weird biblical literalism thing. So the Combs uh, kept their children away from learning literacy. And Evangeline had to be home all day to keep her children inside so that nobody would report them for not actually homeschooling her children. But people didn't necessarily, the church didn't necessarily know that they weren't actually homeschooling. They thought that they were really teaching them at home. So it would have been seen as a little bit odd for them to homeschool, quote unquote homeschool, (laughs) instead of sending their children to school. But it wouldn't be a cause for major concern. It wouldn't be a cause for a loss of face on her husband's part. Okay. See, this is going to be an important detail later. But, I mean, it's also possible that there just weren't detailed records to you know kept or preserved today because i don't know i I guess the point the point that i'm trying to make is this this stuff is wild and bizarre but they were well respected and prominent within the hiles camp of the ifb yes um everybody who went to hiles anderson in their era would have known who they were another small red flag that i want to bring up is that combs and the family were seldom seen at church on sundays The reason that he gave for this is 
that people who were in his college classes would graduate from Hiles Anderson and go on to pastor their own churches and then invite him to come be a guest preacher at their churches. So the reason that they gave that they weren't at church very often was that his speaking schedule was full and he was out of town on weekends and he took the family with him. Okay, so uh, he, according to him at least, he's being treated to like a steak dinner and a new suit almost every weekend. And so he's being paid like a speaking fee in addition to his Hiles Anderson uh, college salary. But maybe that isn't true every time they don't go to church. It's just like yeah. an excuse. Yeah. So it, it's not clear if he was telling the truth about that. And when he did visit other churches, he probably didn't get the large amounts of money that Hiles did. But he was definitely being treated well. He's living the life of a fundy celebrity. Mm. So I think I mentioned that the Combs had six children. The younger four were their biological children. But their oldest two children were adopted. Their oldest son and then their second daughter, the oldest daughter, the second child, the oldest daughter, who they called Esther, who they said was adopted. So that seems so. Is it is it strange in fundy circles for couples to adopt their first children? So the Combs, according to what I could find on the internet, they thought that they were not able to have children, so they actually adopted their first two: their son, who is the oldest, and then Esther, who is the second oldest. In the IFB, adoption is looked at as a little bit risky in general, and that is, I believe, it's because of racist reasons. Oh, so it's not seen as like a charitable or like a positive thing. It is, but there's also a stigma of adopted children being harder to train, harder to control. Again, I think this is usually motivated by racist beliefs about non-white children and their behavior. And it it is a bit unusual for someone to adopt their first child. But what happened in this situation is the Combs thought they couldn't have children and they adopted two. And then it turned out that they could have biological children as well. So they had four more biological children. But the Combs, so they adopted their first children and then they went on to have uh, four more. Yes, almost. The The reality is that their oldest son was huh. legally adopted, but the child that they called Esther was not legally adopted. Wait. No. Okay. So she had been given up as an infant to the Baptist Children's Home Orphanage because her birth parents didn't feel that they could care for her properly. And this child that they called Esther was they they let Joe and Evangeline take her home as a five-month-old baby as kind of a try-it-before-you-buy-it situation. And then they trusted Joe and Evangeline Combs to eventually complete the adoption legally. But that never happened. So this daughter that they called Esther, who she now goes by a chosen name, which is Elsa, and we're going to use that for most of the episode. But this child had no birth certificate, no social security number. So on paper, she doesn't exist, at least as far as the government is concerned. That's correct. So Um. this situation has very quickly gone from slightly unusual to downright sketchy. But the people around them have no idea that their child is not legally adopted. The first outward signs of trouble don't show up for several more years. So I have a couple questions here. Okay. So one so is there their son did they adopt him from the same place? I do not know if he was adopted from the same place. I do know that he was adopted legally. Okay. Huh, okay. So question 2 was Joe claiming Elsa as a dependent on his taxes? 
Because, see, I'm really confused as a de- – because, you know, if you claim somebody is a dependent on their taxes, but you don't have a social security, not, like, you can't claim them as a dependent on – so that's worth, like, thousands of dollars a year, right? Because you, you would know this. You have a dependent. I don't. Yeah. I mean, she's not old enough to have been claimed on taxes yet. But as far as I know, you need a social security number to claim someone as a dependent. Uh, I've prepared somebody else's taxes, and, and you, you have to put the child's social in. But I assume that Combs, I assume he just didn't claim her as a dependent, or maybe he had a fake social security number for her. Either way, taxes or tax fraud are not mentioned in any of the court documents that I got my hands on. Okay. So but- I'm kind of assuming that he just didn't claim her as a dependent. He just pretended she didn't exist. So, but th- this adoption was never completed legally. Right. Because adoption is, it's a complicated legal process. And so they never went to the effort of completing that because like, so it is possible to adopt somebody without a birth certificate, you know, and get them naturalized eventually. Like even like, you know, you can get them a social security. It's difficult to do, but people go through it all the time when, if they adopt babies that are born in other countries or they adopt babies from, you know, a community that just doesn't keep records on this stuff that, you know, maybe the kid wasn't born in a hospital or, you know, in times, you know, they maybe they just can't be bothered. Right. And it's it's not clear why the Combs specifically chose not to do the proper adoption paperwork. It certainly could have been that they were just lazy because, like you said, it is complicated paperwork. There could have been a more sinister reason behind it. Down the road, documents came out that the adoption agency let them take baby, the baby they called Esther, home before signing papers. They signed an adoption agreement when she was 11 months old to promise the Baptist Children's Home that they would adopt her legally. And then the orphanage sent them three letters, one in 1980, one in 1984, and one in 1994, requesting the documentation that the adoption had been completed. So they, the, the Baptist Children's Home believed that they had completed it legally, just hadn't sent them the paperwork. But the Combs never responded to any of these letters. Joe Combs said to his friends that the orphanage was asking for an adoption fee of 10% of his income. But we have copies of the letters from the orphanage, and that proves that that was not the case. They never asked him for any money to complete this adoption. He just told people that they did for some reason. Yeah, so right off the bat, this seems extremely sketchy to me. This is this is uh, as the cool teens say, hella sketchy. This is hella sketch. Hella yeah. sketch, yeah. Well, the abuse of Elsa predictably started very early in her life. She says that she cannot remember a time when she was not physically abused. Her earliest childhood memory memory is of Evangeline tying her into a high chair and throwing it down a staircase. The high chair stopped halfway down because of a landing and Evangeline went down to the landing and threw the high chair the rest of the way down the stairs. Then she left Elsa, who was about three years old at the time, still tied to the high chair in a cold room alone for several hours. So, oh. And that's her earliest childhood memory. Oh, my God. I mean, to me, to me, this, like, to me, this seems just so unfathomable. Like, I literally, like, I cannot understand why somebody would do this. Like, I, I, like, what on earth could possibly motivate a human being to act with 
such violence towards somebody who is so defenseless like this it makes my skin crawl just I mean, hearing I don't, you yeah. i don't know what could make a human do this but i can tell you what mm. they told elsa they told her that it was her mission it was her destiny it was her gift to be a servant to their family so they treated her as a servant she was forced to do housework care for the younger combs children and then she was also physically abused she was 3 years old like i mean how does how does she even comprehend what the like a th- you know a 3 year old can't even feed itself you have to remember how? though but this is the ifb this is the culture that supports spanking 6 month old babies because they're lying to you this is a culture that supports blanket training to teach infants self-control, which is psychologically proven is not a concept that a child that age can possibly learn or understand. Yeah, but this is the Combs' first ch- or their second child, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what do they have to compare else? Like they, they don't even have really much of a frame of reference for what is good behavior or bad, do they? No, the- they have one other kid that they've adopted. Yeah, and he's only slightly older than her. Right out of the box. They're just starting with this violent physical abuse. Like, ah. Uh. Yeah. And and this is just my opinion, but I think they really did see her as a servant. In IFB families, it's not unusual for children to start learning household chores very young, especially girls. So what you're telling me is that basically Joe and Evangeline Combs, before starting their own, I guess this is the guy that said, you know, my kids won't learn to read until they're 12, which is bonkers. Uh, So I'm sure he has some weird biblical justification for all of this stuff, but what you're telling me is that like, you know, when they're, they're starting their own family. And so, I don't know, maybe they get their, they they illegally obtain a baby who has no birth certificate and no social security number so that she could be enslaved basically from birth and help them raise kids that they plan to have. This is so wild. I mean, it it really does seem like they either originally procured her to serve in this capacity Or maybe they originally intended to adopt her and raise her as their own child, but then when they found out they could have biological children, she kind of got demoted to being a servant. I I think it's, I I don't know which one it is, but it's it's one of those things. Or, you know, their first kid, they're like, oh, this is a lot of work. Maybe we should get another one to help us. Like, that's, oh, and I guess because she's got no social security number, no birth certificate. She isn't legally attached to the Combses in any way. The government isn't going to come by and be like, why isn't she in school? I guess they're not educating any of their kids, but the government isn't going to come by and say, why isn't this child in school? And I mean, if you're in the IFB, you're not going to be trusting the government to oversee your kid's education anyway. So nobody's about to report them for doing this. This is exactly. So, this is an environment that, that just, for obvious reasons, breeds all sorts of abuse. There were one or two Hiles Anderson college girls who were close to the Combs family and would occasionally be asked to babysit at their house. 
And these girls saw signs of physical abuse on Elsa's body. Mm-hmm. So how so how old was Elsa at the time? The Combs left First Baptist Church of Hammond and Hiles Anderson around 1986. And then Joe was an evangelist based out of Florida for a short time. And then he became a pastor in Tennessee. So Elsa was born in 1977, I think December of 1977. So she was in 1986, she would have been nine. So at some point before she was nine. Okay. Ooh. And that's young. It, that and they're seeing point, what? Like marks from, from being Yeah, they beaten. were seeing welts and marks from being beaten um, with like a cane or some kind of rod. And I want to point out that like, beating children <sighs> across the back of their calves or across the back of their legs with rods or belts or switches, like things to produce raised red welts on the back of someone's legs, that's not unheard of in the IFB. I don't know if I'd say that it's common. I don't think that half of families do it. I don't know if over 25% of families do or not, but I know like that this is a thing that does happen. Like there's a scripture verse about different types of wounds and, and people take it really, really literally causing the kind of injury that they, these girls said they saw on Elsa is a thing in the IFB. I wouldn't say it's like incredibly common, but it's definitely a thing that happens. But at this time, the, uh, so the Combs also have, you know, children that are being raised in this house with this, I guess, quote unquote sister who she's actually just an enslaved child who they're imprisoning illegally. Yes. By this point, the oldest boy was also adopted and then all four of their biological children were born. And so there's six children living in the home. And what the college girls are noticing is that Elsa is doing all this work at the home while the other children do not work. And they're noticing that she has raised welts and scars from being beaten on her legs while the other children do not have the same kind of wounds or scars. And so these college girls sort of realize uh, something nefarious is going on. Yeah. And I was not able to find a solid source for this. I don't have a name for sure. I think I know the name of who it is, but I wouldn't name them even if I was for sure. So I guess it doesn't matter. I know that there was at least one Hiles Anderson girl. I think there was more than one, but there was at least one who knew something was going on that's supported by a lot of people's testimony. What I don't know is who in the college administration she reported it to. And I also don't know if anyone from the administration looked into this abuse. I mean, we all know that the IFB just habitually looks the other way when it comes to like abuse, especially if the perpetrator is a respected man or a pastor within the Hiles Anderson faculty. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I mean, t- Hiles Anderson College kept Tom Kimmel on staff even after they knew he was defrauding people, like defrauding church members. And that was almost three decades later. I mean, I can't imagine how bad it must have been in the 1980s. And, and I, I was not ultimately able to find a source to see whether this abuse was actually reported or if the college girls were intimidated into not saying anything or what happened here. The only thing I know with a high degree of certainty is that there was a college girl who knew something bad was going on. I think even if she had reported it, it's likely that it was just swept under the rug because like you said, the IFB and the church in particular are known for just letting these things go on without bringing any consequences. Yeah. And especially if you're close to Jack House, because I mean, this would have been just a few years after the David Hiles had been mysteriously shipped off to Texas in the middle of night following him being 
caught for abusing Joy Evans Ryder. Yes. This who all was came 16 out at the time. Yeah, and this all came out many years later after the fact, but this abuse was in fact happening at the same time as Joy and some other members of the youth group said that Dave Hiles was raping them just a few years before the mysterious death of his own child, Dave's own child, around the same time that other Bible teachers at Hiles Anderson were having dubiously consensual, big question mm. mark, affairs with college girls. This uh, all, mm. oh yeah. Yeah. That's with many I mean, Bible teachers at Hiles Anderson with many degrees of reasons to think that it probably was or probably wasn't consensual. This all was just brewing, just boiling right before the peak of all the abuse scandals at Hiles Anderson at First Baptist Church of Hammond. So all of this, uh, I think the Dave scandal broke in 1987. Like his Miller Road Baptist Church scandal, does that sound right? I'm just that does going sound off right, memory. But, the, but the, the first one, the first one was what, 1982? When he just, they're like, nope, you're out of here. 81, they, I thought. So this was- But and it so, could, you could be right. It could be 82. But 82. Dave, well, the Miller Road Baptist Church scandal wasn't until, because it was 80, it was 1990 when- there was the 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 boy has done a bad thing or whatever. Well, though that was the that was the Swinger magazine scandal was in 1990. Right, so that was after he came back. Right. And then 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 the Hiles Nischick scandal was in 1989. It was just scandals, 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 right. scandals all Towards through the Towards the end 80s. of the, the 80s and the first couple of years of the 90s and then the AV Ballinger scandal I believe was in 93 or 94. This just cesspool of abuse and horrible things happening was bubbling up in Hiles Anderson, the peak of the college's popularity, the peak of its reputation, the peak of its admissions and its money was in the early 80s. And it's so interesting to me because the biggest that the college ever was and the most prestigious that it ever was and the best reputation that it ever had and the most popular it ever was, was when all of these nasty, terrible things were happening just below the surface. I mean, the, uh, the way that we talk about First Baptist Church of Hammond in the 80s is almost like it was just a frat house of pedophiles. Like, <laughs> I hate to think yeah. of a frat house. That's a terrible thing to think about. But, I mean, you know, maybe this Baber behavior isn't, like, overtly encouraged, but cover-ups and looking the other way is so commonplace that every like everybody knows that if you want to do this, if you want to be an abuser and you want to just be the worst you will absolutely get away with it because the people in charge are also engaging in the same sort of reprehensible behavior and so everybody's just covering for each other because they're all doing it yeah and i don't have an, an issue with the characterization of a frat house but i look at it personally more like a petri dish full of the nastiest bacteria possible and and in this petri dish like all these germs are just growing and infecting the parts that aren't yet infected and then also breeding with each other and making even worse kinds of filth and the administration has just got the petri dish kind of like hidden out of sight just stowed in the back of the fridge yeah and if anybody says hey look there's a lot of gross bacteria in there 
the administration just like sprinkles bleach on a couple of the worst places and says, look, we fixed it. This is the oh. smell coming out of the back of the fridge. What is that? Or worse, oh, they that's just been like, there since January, you know? Yeah. Or worse, they just move some of the bacteria out of the colony and out into other colonies so they can just spread further and infect even more people. That's how that's the analogy that, that lives in my head. Yeah. But of course, back to Elsa's story. Speaking of abuse, Elsa says that the sexual abuse from Joe Combs started when she was about six years old. Mm. I'm sorry, but I, I know that you know that this was coming. I mean, they, they enslaved a baby and hid her from the government. I wouldn't, I, I'm not surprised. I no. would be surprised if this didn't happen. So Ugh. Elsa says that Joe began to groom and molest her around the time she was six. And one of the first times it happened, Evangeline walked in and saw it and flipped out. From there, Joe continued to rape Elsa until she was a teenager. And the beatings also got worse after that point as well. So were the be- the beatings were coming from Joe or were they coming from Evangeline? Both. Both. So she was Ugh. home all day with Evangeline because she was quote unquote homeschooling her children, even though they couldn't read and write because they weren't actually homeschooling them. So Evangeline was abusing her throughout the day. Just, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give some details on her abuse and I'm, I'm purposely choosing the more mild, the most mild of the things that I can find. Just so you know. Uh, but Evangeline was just, would just like make her lay on a bed and randomly burn her skin with a curling iron and beating her, forcing her to do the housework, beating her for not doing housework well enough just some real torture. Uh, and then Joe would come home from work and Evangeline would tell him that Elsa was really bad that day. And then Joe would take Elsa in his office and either rape her or beat her and usually both. So they were each abusing her separately and then also abusing her together as a team as well. So as disgusting and horrifying as this is, I think that it is important that we like try to dissect what's going on here so so elsa says that the first time that evangeline caught joe molesting her she was angry and she was upset yes so one of the things that we have discussed previously and recently as well i think we talked about it when we talked about josh duggar is that in the IFB, when men commit abuses, they are never responsible. It's your, like, if you're the wife and your husband cheats or he molests somebody, it's because you weren't satisfying his needs. Nothing to do with him being a monster, him being an abuser, there being something wrong with him. So, honestly, I have, like, I have to wonder if Evangeline's beatings got worse because she was feeling jealousy that this literal slave who was being violently abused and just was somehow stealing her husband's attention. That is what I see as well. Which is a vile, like an absolutely insane thing to just beyond terrible beyond the pale. I think, and this is just is just what I see in the details of this situation that happened before I was born. 
I think that Elsa was originally meant to be what they told her, a servant. Or as we would more accurately phrase it in the real world, a child slave. But when Evangeline saw this abuse from Joe happen, I think she became vindictive. Because as she, as time goes on, Evangeline abused Elsa in the form of outlandish punishments for small offenses. But she also abused her in increasingly sadistic and experimental ways separate from punishment. There is a turning point because in the beginning, Evangeline was abusing her as like a way, way overblown punishment for some tiny, tiny little thing that Elsa did. But then it turns and Evangeline is also abusing her for abuse's sake. Like Evangeline is getting something out of it. And so I think that I think that jealousy over the sexual abuse may be why Evangeline took such a sadistic turn. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we are back from our break. I apologize to all of our listeners, uh, but we have just heard the worst thing that's probably going to ever be on this show ever in history. And I hope that it's the worst thing that is ever going to be in our show in history. But from here on, it gets better. I mean, probably not because we got to cover the Josh Duggar trial when that actually happened. Yeah, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, true. Okay. We don't know. He could plead to something. Everything, everything could be sealed and be like, he pled guilty. He's going to jail for 50 years and nothing is going to be public. That would be top tier. You know what I would be? I would be totally good with that outcome. Yeah. But to back to the story that we're talking about today, we had talked about uh, Elsa attempting to end her life by drinking poison in February of 1997. And she was thankfully unsuccessful. Because this is where things start to get better. This is where things start looking up. Thank goodness. So Elsa did become sick from the poison she ingested. And she was found the next morning by some of the Combs children. She was having a seizure. So she was taken to the hospital. Either Joe or Evangeline accompanied her at all times. They would not let her talk to a doctor alone. The doctors did notice that she was covered in scars. And they didn't know that she was coming in as an attempted suicide. And they tried to ask her about her scars. But with one of the combs constantly present, the doctors weren't able to get her to talk about what was going on. Joe and Evangeline told doctors that she was very clumsy, that she fell a lot, that she had balance issues, and that she was a careless cook. 
and that these were the cause of all of her injuries. Uh, yeah, that's believable. Not right. Yeah. So I so I have a question. So Elsa has no social security number. Right. And according to the government, she literally does not exist. So she isn't going to be covered by Joe's health insurance. So so how are they taking her to the hospital? So do like do they lie about her name and pretend she's one of the other Combs children? What's going on here? Because obviously, if you're an ER doc and you have a 19-year-old, I guess she's not a child, if you have a 19-year-old come in who has seemingly attempted suicide, because I'm sure, you know, they pump her stomach, figure, oh, it's antifreeze. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, she drank antifreeze. Uh, Seemingly, that's a suicide attempt. And covered in scars, covered in bruises, no record of this person existing, no social security number, no birth certificate. That is alarm bells going off immediately. You know something is wrong here. These are our ER docs. They're not stupid. They've seen this stuff before. I'm thinking the Combs family probably didn't have health insurance because he's an IFB pastor. He's employed by Hiles Anderson College, right? No, this is after they left Hiles Anderson because she's oh. 19. Remember, they left when she was nine right. and he became a pastor of his on his own. So they don't have health insurance. Okay, so this they is all just They probably like, don't have insurance. So this might um, be on like Medicaid. No, if you don't believe in getting Medicaid. Because that's government programs. They don't believe in government programs. So they just pay for this out of pocket? Yeah, you just you don't go to the hospital, you don't go to the doctor unless you are really messed up. Like you don't go to the doctor unless unless there's unless it's life or death or unless you broke a major bone. It's wild that they even like, took I broke her. several toes growing up and, and didn't go to the ER. Mm. Like you only go to the ER if you break an arm or a leg or if like you are literally going to die. Uh, because they don't believe in Medicare, Medicaid and they, because of that social programs. That um, is wild. We're, we got to move on from that though, because that is insane. And we don't have time to talk about that. So the official story at the hospital is that Elsa is clumsy and she refused to testify about any abuse. So they kind of had no choice but to release her back to the Combs. But the doctors were so disturbed by what they had seen that they decided to get a detective involved and investigate the family. Okay. So is, is Child Protective Services getting involved? So is it, or is it like a local police department? I suppose they figured out that she doesn't have a social security number, then they would probably have gotten INS involved. It was local detectives. Um, Elsa was 19 at the time, so they did call CPS, but they weren't really able to step in because she wasn't a child. And this is before many counties had what we now call adult protective services. And of course, Elsa has been raised in an environment that would have prevented her from knowing what her rights were or even what resources were available to her. Yes, but... This is where one of the heroes of the story, other than Elsa herself, come in. It's been all villains up to this point, and now we get a hero. Um, This one detective in particular, her name is Debbie Richmond, and it was one of her first cases as a detective. And she really latched onto this. She saw Elsa in the hospital. She was a brand new detective on the Bristol Police Department Force, Bristol, Tennessee, And, of course, Elsa is the hero of her own story, but Debbie's, like, the second hero in this. Debbie makes the call to have the Combs house put under surveillance. Later in 19... uh, A month later, in March of 1997, the Combs home is raided because they saw enough under... Well, they were surveilling to 
suspect that something not good was going on there. And when that home was raided in March of 1997, the investigators found it filthy. Piles of trash bags, black pools of mold in the sink and on the floor, and wild animals living inside the house. So so the combs, they're just like, they have a slave to do their housework, but they're living as... So did they just, like, I, I assume Elsa was at this point incapacitated, so none of the housework was getting done. Yeah, it's unclear exactly what the ca- the situation was during that March raid. The timeline gets a little bit hazy, but I can tell you that once the Combs realized that they were being investigated, they tried to get Elsa out of the house. And she is like in and out of the house for almost a year. At some point in 1997, she was shuffled to like this family in South Carolina. And then she also ended up at Joe Combs' brother's house where his brother and his wife. So her adoptive aunt and uncle, except for the adoption wasn't legal. I'm not sure which house she was at at the time of the March raid. She was just in and out of the Combs house so often during 1997. Like she'd be gone for a few months and then back and then gone for a week and then back. So I'm not 100% sure where exactly she was in during the raid. But this is something that, I mean, it's been kept secret. So even if you can take whatever excuse Joe Combs is giving you about, oh, she's clumsy. Uh, she's a, a clumsy cook. She she injures herself. So this has got to be raising red flags for anybody. So he, what he she's staying at his brother's house, even if it's your bro- like you're not going to be willfully blind to something this evil, even if you're all the way sold out to the IFB. Right. Uh, Elsa had been coached to say that she was just clumsy, fell a lot, burned herself, blah blah blah, cooking whatever. But this was not holding up for the doctors that she saw, nor for the detectives that were investigating the Combs. The Combs. <laughs> and this also was not holding up for the people that she was staying with. She exhibited something that seemed a lot like Stockholm, Synd- Stockholm Syndrome while she was visiting these other families. She would call Joe on the cell phone multiple times per day and even refuse to speak to anybody else until she called him on the phone. The court, so back in Bristol, Tennessee, the court set a date to try to appoint a legal guardian and conservator to help Elsa get a birth certificate, driver's license, social security number, and other things that she needed. So I guess somewhere in this investigation, it came out that she didn't have her documentation. Uh, It's not clear if that came out immediately at the hospital or later when Debbie Richmond initiated the investigation into the family. So the court put out an order in July to tell Elsa to come to court so that they could appoint her a guardian to help her with these things. But Combs lied to Elsa about the court summons. He told her that it was something that she didn't need to worry about, that they were going to try to force her into something she didn't want to do. And he wouldn't let her have the physical paper that the summons was printed on. So, she missed her court date in October where she would have gotten a guardian. And I'm sure this aroused zero suspicions. Right. Finally, after months of investigations, Elsa ended up with Joseph Combs' brother and his wife. And they gave her a lot more leeway. They let her wear whatever she wanted and not like IFB clothes. They let her listen to music, go to movies. And she really started to come out of her shell and kind of overcome the Stockholm Syndrome. And she started to tell Combs' brother and his wife what Joe and Evangeline had done to her. And they encouraged her to call the police and make a statement. 
So they are another set of heroes in this story. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, if your brother were, were they IFB or were they not IFB? They the best. I I feel like they were like Fundy Light. So I feel like if your brother is really into this whole IFB thing and you're maybe not as involved, you're like, whoa, my brother is in a cult. He is kind of crazy. So, yeah. yeah. So after Elsa made that original police report, she returned to the hospital where she was treated after her suicide attempt. She recanted her original statement of having not been abused, and she told the doctors the truth about her extensive scarring. At this time, the doctor allowed her to look in a full-length mirror for the first time in her life. Elsa had been very much unaware of a lot of her scarring because she had never had access to a large mirror before. So she didn't even know how how bad her scarring was. The doctors took a detailed inventory of every scar, and they counted 410 distinct scars on Elsa's body. Jesus. Yeah. So this, I mean, this brings me to something that I like. So we watched the Mel Gibson movie. We watched Passion of the Christ, right? Yes. In April. Yes. Yes. Oh, for Easter. One of the things that you were telling me about was that they, they had the cat of nine tails that they were beating Jesus with. And they sentenced him to... 39 lashes with that. Yes, because traditionally 40 would kill a man. Yeah, and so 39 is is beat them not quite to death. Yes. So this it, so if you multiply 9 tails times so that would be 9 barbs times 39 hits. That, what what number is that? What 9 times 30 is 270. Nine times nine is 81. So 270 plus 81 is 351. So this is, she had more scars than, uh, so then you add four because hands, feet, and then also the various ones. Thorns were in the crown of thorns. I feel like somebody Baptist has done this math before. How many scars did Jesus have when they put him on? Somebody Baptist has done this math and they have made it come up to 1611 because that's the year the King James Bible was, was, uh, was published. I guarantee that somebody has done that math to make it come to 1611. (laughs) Anyway, if, if we're looking at this, the Elsa has more scars than Jesus. That like, that's the conclusion that I'm coming to is that Elsa's got more scars than Jesus. And I'm not making that as like a joke. No, she's suffered to the extent that a human can suffer. Um, But like I said, I really thought about telling you some of the things they did to her. And I just, I literally do not have the heart to be the person who has to tell you that. We alluded to some of it when we were off the air and we made the decision that we did not want to talk about it on this episode because it it's it's unnecessary. This isn't a show about exploitation. This is this is not exploitation content. This is yep. documentary content that we're that I don't have the stomach for it, so we're not going to go there. Yeah, you're you're very you're very sensitive to abuse. Um I feel like you're you're pretty sensitive to that and I just I can't I can't do that to you much less our listeners. Well, you just don't have a barometer for it anymore. That's the thing. Right. Like I've the- seen I've seen some things and I certainly have not had the experiences that Elsa Garcia has had 
not by any means, but I've like I've seen a few things and I'm a little bit more immune. I don't even like watching horror movies. So Yeah, and I'm like I'm a little bit more tough in, in some areas. I mean, this woman's life is worse than any horror movie I can oh, think yeah. of. Yeah, it's so and bad. And this is why I say that I believe this is probably one of the worst cases of child abuse ever documented by the American court system. Uh, I don't know if you or our listeners have ever heard of the book A Child Called It by Dave Pelzer. If you've read or heard of that book, you might know that there have been allegations of exaggeration in his story. It's not clear how completely truthful that book is. But if you've read that book, the things that happened to Elsa Garcia are completely on the level of the abuse that he claims in that book. So I take it after Elsa makes the statement to the hospital, to the doctors, to the police, Elsa makes a statement. I assume that Joe and Evangeline are arrested. Yes, they were arrested in 1999, and then they went to trial in the year 2000. How'd they plead? They pled not guilty. Of course Uh, they did. Same old story about Elsa being clumsy and falling a lot. Uh, She was a rebellious child who needed discipline, they said. But they claimed in court that they only grounded her, they never beat her, and that she was treated no differently than their own children. Uh, Yeah, that would explain 410 scars. And this is um this is an interesting thing that is not as public of information. I I happen to know that Joe Combs was calling random IFB pastors around the country. He was getting their phone numbers. I don't know if he was getting them from the Hiles Anderson Alumni Office or from printed advertisements in Baptist newspapers like Sword of the Lord, but he was calling up minor pastors, like every IFB pastor he could get the name and phone number for. And he was saying, oh, I'm so bewildered. I just, I don't understand. I'm I'm just so perplexed by these accusations. The devil must have possessed her. Well, bewildered and perplexed are the words that he kept mm. using. He was saying that these were false allegations and he was asking for money for legal fees. This reminds me of when the, the precursor to, uh, remember Ken Scop asking for money for his pedophile dad's legal fund? Oh, I don't remember him asking for money. I remember Did him asking people. He asked people to write letters to the judge to ask oh, the judge to right. let that's him go. Yeah. I mean, he may have been asking for money. I don't know. Yeah, but like in court, like how do they how do they explain in court 410 scars? And that's just the scars. That's not the ones that that healed. Right. That um their defense was that Elsa caused them herself because she was so clumsy. No, her back and the back of her legs were literally a giant mass of scars. But that's the clumsiness defense, is the defense that they ran with. They coached the other five children. So the other five children were in their early to late teens at the time of the trial, and they coached them all very effectively to describe specific incidents of Elsa being clumsy in ways that caused her injuries. So how long was the jury out for? 10 minutes? I don't know about the jury time. It seems that this was a very long trial overall. I think I read somewhere that it was the longest trial ever to take place in the county where it took place, but I am i think I read that. I'm not 100% sure. The defendants took the tactic of trying to have the prosecution's evidence ruled inadmissible on technicalities. So they basically nitpicked every single literal word of Elsa's testimony the testimony of people who babysat for the family in the brief time they were in Florida and the testimony of the doctors who treated her. So I've got friends who are trial lawyers. I've got friends who are public defenders. 
I have friends who are in law school right now. And this is a strategy, the strategy of throwing up objection after objection after like literally every 10 seconds, you know, trying to get tons and tons and tons of evidence dismissed. This is this is a tactic that people use. I mean, it's the it's the legal equivalent of throwing a Hail Mary on literally every play. If you're if you know football, it's the legal equivalent of only doing Hail Mary passes. But like when you know that you have no case and it does not play well with a jury. If you try this strategy, if you're a lawyer and you try the strategy, the jury will automatically assume that you are trying to hide something. Like they tried this strategy last month at the Derek Chauvin trial um for the the cop that that murdered George Floyd. Uh, and the jury, I mean, the jury in that trial only deliberated for like four hours before they found him guilty on all counts. It's a terrible legal strategy. And I'm sure that like the plea deal that the Combses were offered was probably like life in prison because and so they just did this because they had nothing to lose. I didn't see in the information I read uh, if they were offered a plea deal or what they were offered. But what I can tell you, and I say this with immense satisfaction is that on March 24th, 2000, Joseph Combs was convicted of especially aggravated kidnapping, aggravated assault, aggravated perjury, aggravated rape, and seven counts of rape. And on April 25th, 2000, he was sentenced to a cumulative and, more importantly, consecutive 114 years in prison. Evangeline Combs was convicted on the same day of especially aggravated kidnapping and four counts of aggravated child abuse. And she was sentenced on the same day as her husband to 65 years in prison. So this that's good. And I mean, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I do not support the death penalty. So seeing these people go to get essentially what are life sentences, this is the best possible outcome for this awful situation. So Catholics are supposed to be against the death penalty. And I agree with that in conscience in general, but my heart does feel that some people deserve it. And that would be these people. But seeing them sentenced to effective life sentences is almost as satisfying. And this is a matter of personal satisfaction to me, because as I've said before, I feel that if it were up to me to meet out justice, I would have wanted Jack Scott to get more than 10 years. I felt like 10 years was light for his crime I felt like 20 years would have been more appropriate. This sentence actually feels a lot more fair. This feels a lot more like justice. Like this is closer. This is better. This outcome gives me a lot more satisfaction than the Jack Scott outcome does. So this was what? March 24th, 2000. April 25th, 2000. Okay. So how did this play in the IFB? How, because you were, I, I don't know, were you old enough to remember this? I Did you know not, that this was going on? No, I did not know about it in the present time. I mean, just like... Have you talked to your dad about it? Like, y- your dad must have known, oh, this was going on. Yes. What happened with that? How did, how did he... So, I remember my dad telling stories about this case in church a little bit later. So, I, when I would have been seven when the trial happened... And I don't remember hearing about it at that age specifically. What I do remember 
is a couple years down the line, so being eight or nine, and hearing my dad talk about this in the sense of a sermon illustration. So he would say something like, he would be talking about how just because you look like a good Christian on the outside doesn't mean that you are exempt from doing bad things. Like, just like you can't, you, you know, people can be hypocritical and people can look like good people and not be good people. So he would tell a story and he would not name the man. He would not name Joe Combs, but he would say, there was a man who was a Bible teacher at Hiles Anderson and everyone thought he was such a good person, but it turned out that he was horribly abusing a little girl and now he's in prison for the rest of his life. So I grew up hearing this, hearing the very bare bones of the story. So I've always known who, who Joe Combs was. So that message that your dad, that is a, you know, that is a legitimate takeaway that somebody could make from this case. That's not like a. No, like that's a, that's a very valid point is that. um, Which is not something we've come to expect from the IFB. (laughs) No, is it, is it, but that is is a, a very good point that people can look one way on the outside and be a different way on the inside or in private. So what, how did the rest of the IFB react? I, I, I guess you wouldn't know all of it, but like how how did people talk about this in years later? Was it just like, oh, this guy, Joe Combs, he was, were people saying, oh, he was possessed by a demon or were people saying he was just a bad guy and he had us all fooled or, or what was it? Yeah, I was hearing, I think the message I was hearing more than anything else was you are never so righteous that you are exempt from doing bad things. You can be very a very righteous person, but you can still be susceptible to doing evil. So it's basically a pride goes before the fall story was how this was spun. It was, you can think you're all that. You can think you're doing great things for God. But when you think that you're super great, that's when the devil's going to tempt you to sin. And if you're depending on yourself and your own righteousness and not depending on God, then you're going to be susceptible to doing terrible things. So the IFB is, I hate to say, low-key on point with this one. Yeah, like uh, this is like not a super bad take. Because yeah. they actually condemned him thoroughly. And they didn't say, oh, well, the devil made him do it. Or you know, he was he was possessed. It wasn't that narrative. It was he did something absolutely terrible. And... um it's probably because he got arrogant. Like he thought he was, he thought he knew everything and he thought he could play God in Elsa's life. So I've got a couple of questions here. Uh, okay. Cause we're moving on to the, this before we move on to really getting into Elsa's recovery, because that's the second part of the, that's the most interesting part of the story for me. So were, were Joe and Evangeline Combs raised in the IFB or did they come to find the IFB later in life? I have absolutely no information on them before the 1970s. And this is another odd thing to me about this case. They just seem to appear out of nowhere, like fairly early in Hiles Anderson history, as a trusted couple. It was kind of a big deal to be on staff in the Bible department, to be trusted to teach what they see as the most important topic that can possibly be taught. And I have no clue where they came from. Huh. Or how they got to be that trusted. I, I guess I was just curious because when it comes to villains, when it comes to bad guys, I, I mean, I personally, I you you know this from listening to me talk about people like Hiles, but I love a good origin story, especially for a villain. 
I mean, my favorite Harry Potter book is probably the sixth one because that's where we get to learn all about Voldemort's origin story. Aside from that, like I, I do want to talk about them though because I, I know you had your theory that their plan was to raise Elsa as a slave. That you know, Joe, when Joe began the the sexual abuse, that was never initially part of the plan. I like for me, I want to know what was that conversation like between the Combses when ostensibly one of them proposed illegally adopting a child to be a slave. Like, I want to know what that reaction was. Like, how how long it took one of them to convince the other one to... Like, how do you convince your partner to adopt a slave? I want to know how that conversation goes. How do you bring that topic up? I mean, we don't know for sure that that conversation was had at the time of the adoption, the fake adoption. Because air, it seems... Air quotes, adoption. <laughs> yeah, I'm, heavily making air quotes because it seems that they adopted her because they thought they were not going to have any biological children. And then later they did. So this conversation about telling her that she was designed, that she was destined to be a servant to the family, that that was God's will for her. That conversation would have had to happen very early in her life because she has no memory of a time before she was told that. I mean, is it possible that like, they adopted her to be their own child. And then as soon as they actually gave birth to their own child, then they were like, Oh no, what are we going to do with this adopted child? Better make her a servant. Yeah. Okay. So I don't necessarily think that that's the case though. Right. And and I'll tell you why is that we know the adoption was never legal. So True. not even Elsa was what? Five months old. It's like, to me, it feels almost like they plan to do this from the beginning because the thing is with abusers and you, you don't get to perpetrating this kind of abuse on another person without having a predisposition to being an abuser. You just don't. Nobody, they, people don't just become this way overnight. When they, is people who are like this are methodical when they are picking their victims. They intentionally choose people who are the most vulnerable and who are the least likely to have somebody else looking out for them. And if there is somebody else who is looking out for them, they will go out of their way to try and isolate that person or try to sever those bonds in any way that they can. So if you have like a literally a baby who does not exist on any government records with no birth certificate and no social security number that is literally the most defenseless victim that there is okay so when they raided the property in that march 1997 raid the police said it was filthy so that leads to my theory about this whole thing I think maybe Evangeline had some mental health problems, maybe just some clinical depression at the beginning, stuff that could happen to anybody. And she couldn't keep up with the house the way that IFB wives are expected to keep up with the house. So maybe they did adopt her with the idea that she would be a typical IFB daughter who just helps around the house a lot, like who does a lot of chores. And then they got pregnant, and then the servant narrative takes over, and then the sexual abuse starts, and Evangeline is jealous of Elsa and becomes vindictive, and that's when she makes that switch between hurting her for punishment reasons, and then Evangeline starts to take pleasure in actually torturing her. Like, just may- Maybe that's how it 
played out. I don't know. See, I, I still disagree with that. And here's why. A couple of reasons. One is, so they, they adopted Elsa from a Baptist orphanage, right? Right. And when, when I say adopted, I mean kidnapped, basically. Or, or somebody gave them a baby without checking to make sure. Or, but it was a Baptist organi- uh, orphanage. Yes. Unclear if the orphanage is IFB. I don't think it is, but definitely Baptist. So Joe is very involved. We don't know if the first child was adopted from this orphanage. Right. We don't know where the first child was adopted from. But Joe is very involved in the IFB. Maybe he knows somebody at the orphanage, or maybe that's where they got their first kid from. They saw how the whole process works. Or maybe, you know, Evangeline knows somebody at the orphanage because babies are, I guess, supposedly a woman's responsibility. And there's some connection there. Somehow, one of them figures out that this orphanage is a shoestring operation with record keeping that is dubious at best, or that at least they're not going to do the due diligence to make sure that the babies that they're giving away are actually legally adopted. So they figure out, okay, well, if you want to get a baby with no birth certificate, no social security number, you know, this child has maybe been given up by a woman who couldn't take care of it, or babies from women who were put in contact with the orphanage by a Baptist organization who wanted to talk them out of having an abortion. Regardless, this is not a well-run operation. And either Joe or Evangeline figures out that they can obtain a baby with no social security number and no birth certificate, essentially a baby that does not exist on paper, that the government would have no record of, that nobody would come looking for. And if they actually wanted to raise Elsa as their child, they would have taken the steps to get her a social security number, which they did with their first child. And also, you know, Joe would have gotten to claim her as a dependent on his taxes. That is thousands of dollars a year that they are giving up in order to obtain this crypto baby. This is premeditated. This is premeditated for me. There is no other explanation. You know, that is a really good point because they did the legal paperwork for the other kid they adopted. Yeah. And he's a boy. And here's what I'm getting at. And I like this makes me feel so icky to say this. I think that Joe intentionally chose a girl to be their prisoner slave baby so that he could have somebody that he would want to exploit sexually. That is such a terrible thought, but I can't say it doesn't make sense. <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm not joking here because I usually try. I usually try to look for the best in people, but also for me. When somebody shows you who you are, who they are, you believe them. So recently, I, I mean, I was thinking about our Instagram live when we were answering questions from the Reddit AMA. And one of the things that we talked about was that how good people can exist within evil systems. They don't usually stay a part of those systems, but they can exist as part of those systems for a certain period of time. And this is why I don't like to like assume the worst about people who are IFB. But there is another side of this because abusers are always on the lookout for people who they can control and for people to make into their victims and who they can because because they get power by leeching it out of other people. That's how that's how they get their gratification. Abusers will naturally gravitate towards systems 
that enable their abuse, that will give them an imbalance of power and will allow for no accountability. And we know that the IFB is a system which enables abuse, violence, rape, and then covers it up. We know that Joe Combs was extremely successful as part of this system. He found a place that he could thrive and that he could excel. And that is why I personally believe that this crime was premeditated. We know how the IFB feels about divorce and the position that it puts women in. So if Joe comes to his wife with this idea about kidnapping and enslaving an unrecorded child, how is she going to react? How long was she married to Joe before she knew that he was a monster? And if she found out that he was a monster, you know, what, what's her option? Can she, she can only just pray that Jesus will fix him, that Jesus will make him into a good man. Or maybe, you know, they were a match for each other because she was always a monster too. I don't know. But what I do know is that both of these people deserve to spend the rest of their lives in prison, which Joe did and Evangeline will. To pick up the narrative again, Joe died in prison sometime before 2018. I wasn't actually able to find the exact date. Maybe just nobody cared when he died. Yeah. Um, Evangeline had a parole hearing in 2019. And Elsa, the hero of this story, like a fucking badass, showed up to the parole hearing. The detective who originally got the case started way back in 1997, Debbie Richmond, is now retired. But she has stayed friends with Elsa her entire life. And she showed up to the parole hearing as well to literally hold Elsa's hand through speaking at this hearing. And Evangeline was denied parole. I don't know when she will be up for it again, but it looks very likely that she will never get out and that she will also die in prison. I mean, it's just like you did with Jack Scop. You wrote a letter, but, you know, same idea. Because it came recognized game, but. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but, but I'm, like, I'm pretty cool, but Elsa Garcia is a true hero. She is her own hero, which is so inspiring. She is a survivor. She is so strong. She is so brave. She's like, what a person. Yeah. And I, so I want to take this next part of the episode, this sort of end part of the episode to talk about her recovery, because this story does not end with the Combs being thrown in prison forever, because for me, that's where the real story begins. Yes. So this is the happy ending that we promised you. Thanks for sticking with us to get to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's been long enough. So Elsa, just months after getting out of the Combs house, she submitted a DNA test and she found her biological mother and they reunited. So it turns out the her mom gave her up because she didn't think she could provide for her. And her mom was told that she went to a good Christian family. And until she found her mother, her mother had no idea what she had gone through. Uh, so Elsa changes her first name. She chooses her own name. She takes her mother's last name. So she ditches her abuser's last name, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. She appears in court and testifies for several days against the Combs. The prosecution gets literal hours of testimony from her in court, as well as detailed photos of her scars and the evidence that she provides in her own body and photos of her body and her own story is absolutely crucial in putting the Combs away. So what, just what a badass. Yeah. 
And this is with the defense counsel just objecting, trying to make this experience as traumatizing for her as possible. Picking her story apart, pointing out tiny discrepancies in the days and the order of events. Like if you'd been abused your whole life and couldn't read or write, you might have thought something happened in 1984 that actually happened in 1985, especially if you were six years old at the time. Yeah. But they just picked her apart. And uh, she prevailed, gave hours of testimony. If you ever watch her, I thought about putting a clip from her victim impact statement, like her closing like statement in here. Uh, probably c- couldn't do it. It'll make people cry. But if you want to cry, uh, go watch her like closing statement. Yeah, absolutely. Super powerful. Ner- nerves of steel right there. Oh, yeah. So after the Combs went to prison, Elsa had some difficult years. She said that she didn't know what a healthy relationship was like. And that's understandable. Um, Because of that, she was exploited by... Hi, sweetheart. You spit your pacifier out. And then you yelled at me because your pacifier was out. Do you see the, the, the logical problem here? Uh, after the Combs went to prison, Elsa had some tough years. She said that she didn't know what a healthy relationship was like. And that's that's understandable. That's something that a lot of survivors uh, go through. So she was exploited by some people and she found herself in unhealthy relationships. Again, understandable. When you've known nothing but abuse your entire life, you don't know about any red flags. So a lot of times when people leave abusive situations, they don't know what a good relationship is and they end up kind of cycling through several situations that remind them or mirror their past. Yeah. Once again, abusers will always target people who they think are vulnerable. That's just how they operate. That is how they operate. So this is a, this is a deliberate tactic. So they are, they are practiced and they are good at manipulating people, especially people who have low self-worth or low self-esteem who have come out of an abusive situations. Uh, Those are people who they see as easier to gaslight, easier to control, uh, because they're going to be more emotionally vulnerable or emotionally needy, and it's a toxic cycle. Right, and and it turns getting out of an abusive situation into a real catch twenty two type situation, where you get out of one bad situation, but then you get right into another, and then people tend to follow that cycle a few times, and that's not something people should be shamed for because it's it's really just another factor of their trauma. Most people need external help to break that cycle. And so how did Elsa go about breaking those patterns? Sheer force of will, as best as I can tell. Elsa, once again, just becomes her own hero. She got pregnant with her daughter, not too, just a few years after getting out of the Combs house. And then she just up and decided that she was going to make a better life for her kid. Uh, This quote is from the parole hearing in 2019. This is what Elsa had to say. About Evangeline. She might have broken me, but my daughter put me back together because I was able to break the cycle of abuse and raise her the way I should have been raised. Yes, I still have scars and pain and nightmares, but she didn't win. I survived. She lost. She tried to break me. She broke my body, but didn't break me because I survived. If that isn't an inspiring quote, I don't know what is. That is truly inspiring. Also, also had support from several key people in the story. 
She had support from Detective Richmond and also from another female detective who dealt with her case and from several journalists who covered her story throughout the years. Several of these detectives and journalists and doctors that helped her became really invested in her life and kind of bent their professional ethics to become her personal friends. Hmm. Uh, One journalist said in an article that they keep a picture of Elsa on their desk. Yeah. But of course, this is all a process. This process took years. It was not linear. Even possibly the strongest, toughest, bravest person ever to live couldn't do it all on her own. And it wasn't an easy process. And this is why I don't like when people talk about Anna Duggar and say, oh, why doesn't she just leave? Because just leaving is not a thing that doesn't exist. Leaving is a process. Usually years. Elsa said it took her about 13 years to start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, to start to feel okay. And then 20 years after leaving the Combs house, she feels like she is reaching a point where she's about as healed as she's ever going to be. And over those years, she had to do an immense amount of emotionally brutal work on herself in order to get to that point. Yes. And a lot of that work takes place in private. I know that Elsa did a lot of therapy. I, I think it's just remarkable that she was able to do that work for herself. You know, no one could have blamed her if she had not been able to move past what she went through. If she had ended up being addicted to substances, if she had ended up not ever really making anything of her life, she had ended up in a mental health facility long-term or whatever. Nobody could have blamed her. But she somehow did this work for herself and gave herself this amazing gift. And I, I just think that's that's really inspiring. Elsa Garcia, I mean, that's inspirational to me as well, because this is, I mean, this is a woman who has been through worse abuse than anybody else that I can possibly think of. From as young as she can remember, she was treated with nothing but hatred and violence, and she managed to put herself together into a functioning person. But this story, I mean, this story could have ended very differently. One of the stories that I think back to, and this is from around the same time, this is one that really stuck with me and one that really affected me. You remember we had a special episode a few months back about a lawsuit against David Hiles. Um, How could I forget? And the woman, the, the plaintiff in that lawsuit was a woman, she is unnamed, uh, but she was sexually abused by David Hiles from when she was 13 years old until she was 17 years old. Her life was irreparably affected by the abuse that she suffered. She was just broken mentally because of it. And it, 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 it uh, yeah, that yeah. woman had lifelong physical and mental issues. Because of what happened to her. And I want to be clear that we're not like victim blaming. Of course she had long lifelong issues. That I would never ever blame her or shame her for that. Elsa has said that she also has physical pain, of course, and nightmares, and that her life is forever changed by what Joe and Evangeline Combs did to her. It's not that that her life wasn't forever changed. It's that she did something extraordinary in having a life beyond this. Yeah. And I mean, this is the insidious thing about all of this abuse, though, is that it doesn't end when the abuser is caught and brought to justice. And different people are affected differently. And every single day, um, 
almost every single day, at least Sadie and I get messages from people and they tell us, oh, I, that they were abused in their church and they tell us that they suffered and that, you know, one thing that I always see in common with every story that we hear is that the road to recovery is not going to be linear. Sometimes it will feel like it is two steps forward or one step back, or it'll feel like it's one step forward and then two steps back, you know, but the point is that you keep going and that you don't give up. And eventually maybe it takes years, maybe it takes decades, but you can get to a point where you are able to be at peace with the things that you survived. Yeah. Sometimes I feel that people focus way too much on attaining some arbitrary milestone of okayness after trauma. And I think that's really foolish. People think, oh, if you have trauma and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you do this thing, you do that thing, you do this thing, then you'll be okay in X number of months or X number of years. Like, like there's a timeline for healing. And that's just, that's just not accurate. I hope people will forget about milestones and forget about what you should be doing. And instead, let's remind trauma survivors and remind ourselves that there is life after trauma. When when you have major, major trauma in your life, your life tends to get split into before and after. And I think people focus so much on the getting through that they forget about the getting to. Like, what are you going to? You're going to the after. Like, there is life after. That's what Elsa has done. She will never be without scars or without pain, but she has made a life for herself after. Her before was so, so, so bad, but she's made herself a pretty good after. And I think that's what we need to focus on, not some timeline. It's what you're getting to. And I think what's especially powerful is about this whole don't worry about milestones thing is that it's, I mean, it's coming from you considering all that you've been through and all that you've recovered from and all that you missed out on. Like you have, and I'm not saying, you know, it's anywhere near as close to what she went through because Jesus, I mean, she was tortured. There's just no comparison. No, but I mean, you have every reason to be bitter about what you suffered. And I can honestly say that you are one of the least bitter, you know, one of the most earnest, positive people that I know you have a good outlook on things and honestly it's infectious it's important for everybody to know that I mean, but that isn't achieved overnight and everybody who is listening to the show who has suffered something in their life and we know that there's a lot of people who listen to the show who you know have suffered you know various abuses in their life because we just know from talking to them that's part of our audience but everybody who's listening to that you know we believe in their ability to recover and their ability to find peace and that's one of the reasons why we do this show yeah and i feel like this show allows me to be open about a lot of things and one of those is the fact that i went through a time of being angry i went through a time of mourning the things that i wish i had had and mourning the things i feel like i lost or missed out on for me it took about three years i didn't want anything to do with god I was not ready, more than religion, I was not ready to have peace. I was not ready to move past it and allow myself to be at peace. I was just mad and I needed to be mad. And people who have been through any kind of trauma, no matter how big or small it seems to people on the outside, those people deserve that time of grieving and that time of anger, if that's something they feel like they need. 
But on the other hand, there came a time when I knew that I had gotten all the good I was going to get out of being angry. I had completed the, the journey of anger that I was on. And if I continued to be angry, it was just going to hold me back from actually living life, like the after part. And I've said this before, but I feel like the IFB stole the first 20 years of my life from me. But if I live to be 100, they only got 20% of my life. So if I live 20% better, 20% more happily every day for the rest of my life, then I effectively make that 20% back. It was not inappropriate for me to be angry. And I have not gotten over it. And I have not forgotten about what I went through. But I have decided that I have had enough anger for myself. And I have chosen to live in the time after. I am not passively letting it go. I am not passively letting, just forgetting about my past. I am actively choosing to live beyond that, to live in the after part. And that's what Elsa did. And that's what Elsa did. So before we end this episode, I just have one more thing that I want to talk about, uh, which is something that I guess I've become more aware of in the last few weeks. There is a sort of gaslighting tactic that the IFB and the various fundy groups use where if somebody has been abused, if their abuser is caught, they do the whole Jesus fixed me dance, right? Mm -hmm. And then the survivors, yeah, the survivors will be expected to thank their abusers for their transgressions because it has quote unquote strengthened them, I guess. We will probably get into this more on a later episode, but I want everybody to know that anybody who has treated you with violence or neglect, you owe them nothing. You don't owe them the time of day, much less thanks. They like they will tell you, oh, peace comes with forgiveness because you know that's how they get back into your life. Uh, they're like, you need to forgive me, which I mean peace coming with forgiveness that may be true i couldn't tell you but that does not mean that you owe them any sort of interaction so you can forgive them in your head and just don't have to tell them you don't have to to tell them that you forgave them um because for me i believe that true revenge is survival true revenge is thriving in spite of insurmountable odds and that's one of the really inspirational pieces that I take from Elsa's story. I think forgiveness is a personal choice. If you feel that you would be a better person or a happier person or more at peace, if you forgave, then by all means. But I agree with you on calling on the idea that forgiveness and forgetting is the only path to peace. And I completely agree that just because someone has repented does not mean that you are obligated to forgive. And certainly you are not obligated to feel thankful that you were hurt. That's gaslighting. Forgive if it would Forgive if it would do you good. Like there's this Beyonce lyric that kind of comes to mind when I think about this kind of thing. I love Beyonce. Which lyric I is know. it? Uh, the best revenge is your paper. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And she's not talking about like cash. Like her concept is, I think what she's saying in that song is that 
when someone says she's not worth anything as an artist, but then later they want to buy all her music because she's so awesome. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I was thinking that you were going to quote, oh, you, you know the song Listen from Dreamgirls? Yeah, I, I thought that you were going to quote that one. That one's pretty good. Well, when I hear the best revenge is your, is your paper, kind of the way that I, the way that I hear that, or the way that I interpret that is that the best revenge is living my own life. The best revenge isn't sitting and being angry about what I couldn't wear, what I couldn't do growing up. The best revenge is putting on a pair of jeans and going to a concert and not thinking about what anyone would think and not caring what anyone would think. Just doing it, having a good time, living my own life. Yeah, and that's what you've done with your life. And that is what Elsa Garcia is doing with her life. And that's the happy ending that we promised you guys. Uh, I think it's time for us to wrap up this episode. Is there anything more that we have to say? Uh, I wanted to, oh, I wanted to thank our patrons. We had a big, um, increase in patrons over the month of May, which is super cool. We wanted, I wanted to say thank you because, because of our patrons, we get, you know, we get closer and closer to being able to make the podcast our actual jobs, which would be so cool. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and speaking of patrons and speaking of pride month, uh, because we're, uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but during Pride Month, we have decided that we are going to be donating all of our Patreon dollars, as well as the profits from our merch shop to the Howard Brown Health Center in Chicago, which provides specialized health care to the LGBTQ community, including but not limited to hormone treatment and uh, gender affirming resources for trans people, mental health and counseling services, and uh, HIV aid and AIDS prevention and treatment. That's if if you've been thinking about subscribing to the Patreon, if you do it, uh, all of your Patreon dollars for the month of June will be going to that. Yeah, and I've, I'm super proud to be supporting a good cause for the month of June. Yes. Oh, and also speaking of LGBTQ stuff. Uh, oh, right. Please send if you are a queer person and you have a story to tell us about a fundamentalist upbringing. Please send that to us at leavingedenpod at gmail.com. Please include your correct pronouns. And please, uh, if you have, uh, if we can use your name or if we can't use your name, or if you want to come up with a, a different name that we can refer to you as. Uh, we are really trying to focus on people's stories in that month. And so we want to just maybe read a story every episode from a listener. All right. Well, that's all I have. Yeah. Uh, so uh, once again, you can follow us on social media. That is going to be Leaving Eden Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Leaving Eden Pod on Twitter. Uh, Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Yep, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music and also on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. If I ever decide to actually consolidate all those into one decent social media handle, it'll be Hell Yes Sadie. But like, that's never going to happen. It might. It might. (laughs) So you can join our Facebook group on facebook.com slash 
Eden Exodus, and we have a Clubhouse Club, which we haven't used yet, which is also called Eden Exodus. Uh, you can uh, our Patreon once again is patreon.com slash leaving Eden Podcast, and you can follow my social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. I am at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. And until next time, hope that you guys have a great day. Bye bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.